Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, cheese, graphene, and embryos. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Jeffrey Rosenthal discussing probability theory. Also, we'll find out how slime mold reproduce. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, again, transmitting the truth through radio. <laughs> yeah, the truth will set you free, right? <laughs> well, why are we locked in this dungeon of a studio then? <laughs> I guess we must be spreading lies then. <laughs> <laughs> so do we ever find out what Cheese Whiz is made out of? It's really not cheese, I don't think. It's not? <laughs> I have no idea. If, it, if cheese at all, probably a low proportion of cheese in there. <laughs> so do you eat it directly uh, by whizzing it into your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Anything involving whiz, not good. <laughs> Are snorting it. So speaking of cheese, turns out some food scientists are being very exotic about their cheese. <laughs> taking cheese to where no man has taken cheese before? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Bubblegum flavor, watermelon, cotton candy. That's a travesty of nature. <laughs> I <laughs> so, like my cheese to smell like foot mold. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, isn't that what cheese is supposed to smell? Yeah, I don't know what they're thinking. The original plan was to uh, have a strawberry-flavored cheese so that more kids would eat cheese, dairy products, more calcium. Okay. That didn't work because strawberries and berries in general are a bit more acidic and doesn't work well with the pH of a cheese, which is about right. 5.2. A berries are about 4.2. So what they've done instead is they've tried it with different flavors, watermelon, bubblegum, banana, and that seems to work. I'm surprised that it works, number one, but I'm surprised <laughs> that they think that anyone's actually going to eat this. Apparently they tested on kids and they were able to distinguish the flavors and actually enjoy it, they claim. <laughs> These were kids that had been starved for five hours before the test, I believe. <laughs> See, I, I would think if you wanted kids to eat cheese, you just have a wrapper with Paris Hilton or somebody on it. And that would get all the kids excited about it. Well, maybe after they reached their teens. Well, that's why I'm here locked in the dungeon and not a marketing genius. So, <laughs> I thought all marketers are liars. So anyways, this is work led by John Jagey at the Wisconsin Center for Dairy Research. You'll be able to see this in a few months or so, actually probably by next year. I'm waiting for Emerald to come up with a dish for it. <laughs> All right, your story's a lot more fun than mine. <laughs> it's like a party in my mouth. <laughs> well, you can have a party in your mouth involving electrons. I get a shocking feeling in my mouth once in a while, <laughs> don't you? Well, you might if you're chewing pencil lead. Sipping on the BNC cable doesn't help either. <laughs> Why are you sipping on BNC cable, should I ask? Uh, just to find out what the voltage was. There is some. <laughs> well, it's if it's connected to vibrator, maybe. <laughs> I don't know why your vibrator is connected to a BNC cable to begin with, but here we go. Black holes and pencil lead. They apparently have a lot in common. They're black. <laughs> well, among other things. So it turns out pencil lead is composed of sheets of carbon, sheet-like structure called graphite. Right. If you take this down, just two layer of graphite, it's called graphene. Uh-huh. And it turns out in this particular conformation, electrons can move around very freely within the uh, structure. Even a superconductor. Uh, it's almost like that. It, they almost have no uh, impedance and they move near the speed of light. Uh-huh. And so the interesting thing about this is that when electrons are moving quite so quickly, they can exhibit a phenomenon called tunneling. 
So if you have an energy barrier surrounding Uh a particular system like this, you would think that some sort of particle like an electron couldn't escape. But because of the mysteries and amazing things of uh, quantum mechanics, they can actually tunnel out of the barrier. Yeah, it's like my ping pong ball. Apparently, they have a tendency to go under the net (laughs) and not over the barrier or whatever. Uh, I think that's because you're playing with foosball, I think. (laughs) So they were surprised that they found this effect. Normally, they expect this to see in systems like black holes. But the practical application is they think it could be used to make transistors in the future. Cool, without any resistance, huh? Right. Well, what you would do is you would change the barrier. So if you have a low barrier, uh-huh. the electron will be trapped in your system. But uh-huh. a high barrier, counterintuitively, though, it'll pass through. So right. you can control states that way. Something to think about when you're writing on a piece of paper with your number two. Yeah, it could create a black hole. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this was published in a recent edition of Nature Physics. All right, and this is from the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble Space Telescope, still yes. going after all these years. <laughs> it keeps on going and going. <laughs> Must be the energized bunny in there. <laughs> well, so while astronomers do uh, get a few hours on it, and they use it to spy on uh, stars and galaxies. Oh well, hopefully not while they're taking a shower, because <laughs> you, you don't want to see Pluto naked. It's just, oh, too, I'm scarred for life after that. <laughs> What did it look like? <laughs> well, it, it was Pluto, Neptune, and Jupiter, some kind of three-way thing. Anyway, but... <laughs> I don't want to ask. No. So Harvey Richer at the uh, University of British Columbia was looking at some uh, dwarf stars out there. Mm-hmm. He's now able to determine at which mass threshold in which stars can either uh, have a sustainable life or basically die out within a billion years. And these are uh, dwarf stars. Okay. So by knowing this mass, he's able to determine better a lot of these ancient objects, how old they are, and he believes with this new finding, we can have a better prediction of how old the universe is, actually. Oh, wow. Have these come from more recent observations through the Hubble telescope? Right. It's actually published in Science a couple weeks ago. All right, well, changing scales again from dwarf stars to embryos. They're both small. Uh, Embryonic stem cells. Excited about them? Sure. I thought the new finding was something about being able to not destroy embryos to get stem cells done. That, that is the new finding. So I guess if you didn't hear, it was probably a couple of weeks ago. A group uh, led by Robert Lanza of Advanced Cell Technologies in uh, Worcester, Mass., And uh, their colleagues have reported that they found a way to culture a single cell from an early mouse embryo. So that was an old result. And so now the same group have been able to do the same thing with human embryos, taking a single cell called the blastomere stage and culture that into a cell line. Wow, so now they can rehabilitate people whose pets have been injured or have uh, lost certain bodily functions, is that right? I think that was the top on their list when they were (laughs) developing this technique. Uh, The reason I'm bringing this up is uh, apparently Discovery has this whole series about people with their pets who are badly injured and they develop all these prosthetics and all this technology to give their pets uh, better living conditions. I thought they usually just put them to sleep. Well, (laughs) I mean, it shows what I know, I guess. Okay, good for them. So this uh, certainly can help your pet out and maybe as a side benefit, maybe some humans as well. Too many of them. (laughs) Right. But this is still not without controversy because most of the techniques that have been banned thus far are saying uh, you have to have a technique that's not going to harm the developing embryo. Right. They're still not sure if this is going to harm the developing embryo or not. Uh So that still needs to be determined. And most importantly, it's to be determined if these people are going to get NIH funding. Ah, that's the key there, huh? <laughs> that, well, that is the mythical goal that everybody's trying to get, is funding. <laughs> uh, very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Nature. 
And that's all for our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Professor Jeffrey Rosenthal will join us to discuss probability theory. So stay tuned. Rock Science Show. Well, life is filled with seemingly random occurrences that both bring spice to life and fill it with moments of extreme anxiety. But how are we to evaluate the odds of, say, winning the lottery or, alternatively, dying in an automobile crash? How do we make decisions in a world of probability? Well, join us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this issue is Professor Jeffrey S. Rosenthal. Professor Rosenthal is a professor in the Department of Statistics at the University of Toronto and is the author of numerous research articles and textbooks on probability and the recipient of many prestigious research and teaching awards, including a Premier's Research Excellence Award. His book, Struck by Lightning, The Curious World of Probabilities, explores this issue of randomness in our lives. Professor Rosenthal, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Thank you. So it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. You've written, uh, I think, a very fascinating book, Thank uh, you. Struck by Lightning. You know, as I was reading it, I was kind of reminded of Apple's slogan for their iPod Shuffle, Give Chance a Chance. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you start the book, say the randomness is everywhere. How do we uh, actually make rational decisions in uh, a world that's uh, full of probabilities? Yeah, well, it's true that, as you say, uncertainty and randomness are everywhere. Every time you uh, buy a lottery ticket or you're in an airplane, you don't know if it's going to crash, or you're listening to an opinion poll or trying to make sense of a medical study, then you're up against randomness and uncertainty. And what I try to argue in the book is that just sort of a basic understanding of how probability and randomness work can actually go a long way towards making sense of things. And it doesn't mean you'll always know what's going to happen next, but at least you'll have a sense of what things you should and shouldn't worry about and what decisions you should and shouldn't make. I see, I see. Lots of ways of going about this, but how do we actually measure the randomness uh, that can occur for a given event? Well, it depends on what event you're talking about, of course. Um, If it's something like the chance that you'll match the jackpot in a lottery, Hmm. then it's easy to work out the probability. You take all the possible combinations of numbers that they could pick and say, what's the chance that they'll pick the one that you've selected? And that's easy enough to work out. If it's something like, say, the chance that your airplane is going to crash, well, then the right way to approach it is to look historically at how many commercial airline flights there are and how many of them crash and so on. So it's a combination of sort of uh, logical reasoning and looking at the numbers that are out there. Okay, I see. But then how do we deal with, for example, in uh, the recent film Inconvenient Truth claims that uh, global warming is a bigger threat than global terrorism. How do we come up with figures like that? Yeah, both those things measure the effect of global warming and the uh, risks of terrorism are both things that are difficult. As far as terrorism, I would take the approach of looking, again, historically at how many people are killed or hurt by terrorists. And I think a lot of people get an exaggerated sense because of newspaper headlines that things like terrorist attacks and airplane crashes and so on are actually more likely than they really are. So one statistic I find is interesting is that if you look at the month of uh, September uh, 2001, 
in which the 9-11 attacks occurred. Mm-hmm. Well, it so happens that actually more Americans were killed in ordinary automobile accidents in that same month than were killed in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Now, that's not in any way to minimize the seriousness of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, but it is to put things in a bit of a perspective. And so when people thought that, you know, those attacks, they changed everything and everything was so much more dangerous now than it was before, well, actually, no, it was on a par with other dangers that we were already used to. So that's one way to think about things. As far as the global warming, it's a more complicated question because, well, first of all, a lot of it involves looking at history. So there's an issue, for example, whether increased levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are related to increased temperature. And it seems like there's quite strong evidence that it is based on the historical records that by sampling ice samples, they can look back in some cases hundreds of thousands of years and figure out what the uh, average temperature was and what the carbon dioxide level was on sort of a year-by-year basis. And there appears to be quite a strong correlation between those two. So things like that, that would provide evidence that it's quite likely that increased carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere indeed does increase the temperature. The level with which events are covered is not proportional to their probability, is, I guess, the point here. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly true, and I mean, it leads to what I call headline bias. So mm-hmm. people fear things proportional not to their true probabilities, but how often they're in the headlines, how often they hear about them, and that makes people scared. So automobile accidents, well, they're not so infrequent, but they're not usually the front page headline, whereas some sort of gruesome murder or horrible attack or something, well, that's going to be more gruesome, so it's going to make the front page. And yet, often it's really more the opposite, that the reason something does make all the front pages is because it's so unusual, and that's why people cover it. Whereas if it's something that happens fairly often, then sad as it may sound, it's not going to get as much attention. So headline bias, it says that it's almost the opposite. Almost the more you hear about something in the front page headline, probably the less likely it is for some things. Right, right. Driving a car, which has a high level of accident uh, probability, it's so commonplace that we just sort of accept it. That's right. We're kind of used to it. And also, usually when it occurs, it's a sad thing to say, but, you know, just maybe one or a few people are killed at a time, so it doesn't make a big headline. Whereas if there's a big commercial flight that crashes, boy, is everyone talking about that for weeks and Mm -hmm. weeks. And so people get the impression that it's more dangerous flying in a commercial airplane, whereas, in fact, it isn't. Right, right. Let's move to some of the more fun issues and probability that are mentioned in the book here. For example, there's a problem, I guess, regarding uh, if you're at a party with about 40 people, there's a good probability that two people are going to have the same birthday. Yeah, so that's right. So we call that the birthday problem. And so when people hear that, they'll say, well, look, if there's 40 people at a party, well, there's 365 days in a year. So it doesn't seem that likely that some pair would have the same birthday. And yet it turns out there's actually about an 89% chance that some pair will have the same birthday. And people say, well, how could that be? And you just have to think that, well, with 40 people at a party, you have to think how many different uh, pairs of people are there at the party. So there's the first A with B or A with C or A with D, and then there's B with C and B with D. And when you add them all up, there's actually uh, 780 different pairs of people that you can select out of 40 people. And that's why with so many pairs, it's likely that some pair will have the same birthday. So the comparison that most people make is actually the wrong comparison. Yeah, well, that's right. They just say you know, how many people are there compared to how many days are there in a year, whereas it really should be how many pairs of people mm-hmm. are there compared to how many days in a year. And you can win some good bets with that, I think. Yeah, well, that's right. If you're at a party with about 40 people and you bet somebody that some two have the same birthday, they'll probably take the bet. Right, right. Well, that leads nicely to the other issue is gambling, which uh, a lot of people like to try and play the odds, but you go to a casino, the odds are certainly stacked against you. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, most casinos, most games, the odds are just a little bit against you. So I use the example of the game of craps where there's a 49.29% chance if you play craps that you'll win. So it's almost a 50-50 game. And yet from the casino's point of view, since there's thousands and thousands of people making thousands and thousands of bets on craps, then in the long run, they're going to be guaranteed to make money. That little bit of odds in their favor is going to guarantee them a profit in the long run. Right. Uh, you bring up in the book the law of large numbers. Uh, right. You know. right. So in other words, if instead of a whole bunch of people making a whole bunch of bets at the casino, there was just one rich guy came in <laughs> and made one bet on craps, 
well, then it's possible that the casino would lose, right? Mm. They might lose money. But if there's lots of people making bets, and by the law of large numbers, as we say, over time, the fact that it's weighted just slightly in the casino's favor is actually going to come out to help the casino. Right. Well, I guess as the point has been made that, well, you know, in the long run, the survival rate for everybody goes to zero. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're talking about survival, then, of course, people worry about what are the risks of them dying. And uh. it's true that people tend not to always have a good sense of things. So, as I say, because of the headlines, people worry a lot about, you know, being killed by a stranger or being killed by the terrorists or, you know, dying in some horrible accident. And the reality is that, you know, between uh, cardiovascular disease and cancer, that actually kills the uh, majority of people. And in fact, I sometimes make the point that, you know, one of the risk factors for cardiovascular disease is actually stress and worry. So somehow people worrying that some stranger is going to shoot them in a drive-by shooting, well, you might be doing more harm by the stress that comes from worrying about that compared to the probability that it will actually happen to them. Mm. One of the other concepts that you mentioned in the book is utility theory, as far as uh, how we weight probabilities that exist. Yeah, so that's right. People say, well, how can I make decisions using mathematics and probability? Now, of course, mathematics can't decide what your values are. It can't decide uh, what you think is important or not important. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, what mathematics can do is they can say, well, first, we'll ask you to assign a a utility function, which is to give a, a numerical rating of your likes and dislikes. And, you know, every possible outcome, say, well, if that's a really good outcome, maybe that's a plus 100. If that's a kind of bad thing, maybe that's a minus 20 and so on. And rate them. And once you've rated them all, then you can combine them with the probabilities of them occurring. And you can get your overall expected utility change or how much uh, you think things will get better or worse, depending on what option you select. And that's a way to make decisions where you're faced with randomness and uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen, but you can sit back and try to be rational about it and try to find a way to cope with the randomness to make a good decision anyway. True. I guess one more uh, fun example that you mentioned in the book is the Monty Hall problem. What is the problem and how do we solve it? Yeah, so the, the Monty Hall problem, it got a lot of attention somehow. It was written up in a, a magazine article and a lot of people didn't believe it. And it became this sort of huge controversy with thousands and thousands of people writing in. So it's fascinating. The most interesting thing to me is how interested everyone gets <laughs> in this problem. So the basic problem that's set up is that uh, there's three doors and behind one of them there's a car, but you don't know which one and you're trying to win the car. So first you choose a door. So let's say you choose door number one. And then the host says, well, before I tell you whether you're right or not, I'm going to show you one of the other doors. So maybe the host opens door three and says, look, there's no car behind door three. And then the host says, well, you now have a choice. You can stick with your original door one, or you can switch to door two, the remaining door. And most people think, well, it's got to be 50-50. It doesn't really matter if you stick with your original door or you switch to the new door. But it turns out that at least assuming that the host will always open up one of the doors which is empty, which doesn't have a car behind it, that you should actually always switch. And if you switch, you'll have a two-thirds chance of winning the car, whereas if you stick with your original door, you'll have a one-third chance. So it's not too hard to work out why that's so, but somehow a lot of people just don't believe it, and they're so surprised by it, and they get really upset by it, too. Right. So it's it's basically because you have a greater chance of picking a door without the car initially. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one way to think about it is to say, well, let's see, if you chose the right door in the first place, in Mm -hmm. that case, switching, you'll lose. But if you chose the wrong door in the first place, in that case, when you switch, you'll end up winning. There's actually a two-thirds chance that you chose the wrong door in the first place. Mm, Indeed. I mean, these are all fascinating problems, but some people might wonder, what are actually uh, the sources of randomness in the world and our lives? Well, there's all all kinds of them. I mean, basically, you know, randomness occurring whenever you don't know what's going to happen next. So Mm -hmm. it could be because you have to deal with other people and you don't (laughs) know how they're going to react to things. Or even just because you don't know exactly, you know, what's the configuration of pebbles in your driveway or cars on the road or anything else. And you have to deal with those uncertainties or the weather or the bad guys, whether uh, a building's going to collapse. So because we don't understand exactly what's out there and we don't understand other people exactly, there's always uncertainty. Mm, Indeed, indeed. 
there's also evidence from physics that the universe might be fundamentally probabilistic as well. Yeah, so that's right. So there's sort of a separate thing, which is that the theory of quantum mechanics says that even if we know exactly the current status of everything, we still can't predict the future precisely. We can just predict the probabilities for the future. And that when you look on like a subatomic level and you look at electrons and so on, all physics can really tell us is, well, here's the probability that that electron is going to go mm -hmm. here. And here's the probability it's going to go somewhere else. And in fact, there's a fundamental principle called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which says that between not knowing exactly where the electron is and not knowing exactly the uh, momentum of the electron, there's a certain uh, lower bound on the uncertainty, and you can never know them precisely. So the sort of randomness that's built into the way the universe works. Hmm, indeed. I, I recall uh, Stephen Wolfram had also recently come out with systems which are intrinsic random generators as well. Yeah, well, I mean, normally when we say a system is deterministic, we mean there's no randomness per se. But on the other hand, the, uh, the theory of uh, chaos, as it's sometimes called, says that even slightest bit of uncertainty in how the system is initially configured can still lead to lots of randomness down the road, too. Right, right. But that's uh, epistemological uncertainty, right, where outcome is determined, but we just can't know it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How did you become interested in this whole issue of uh, probability and... Well, ever since I was a kid, I actually liked, especially games, you know, things like uh, Monopoly, where you have to roll dice, and what are the chances you're going to land, and that kind of stuff. So that always kind of fascinated me, and those kind of things. And when I got older, I studied mathematics, and at first I wasn't studying uh, probability. I was studying more sort of pure branches of mathematics. But then in graduate school, I started specializing in probability, and then it was fun for me to realize that I could study sort of mathematical theory of probability and pretty specialized things, but at the same time, I could make connections to everyday things, as I'm doing in this book. Mm -hmm. This is certainly a fascinating book. Uh, the book is Struck by Lightning, the Curious World of Probabilities. And uh, Professor Rosenthal, I do want to thank you very much for talking about it today on uh, the Grox Science Show. Okay, thank you very much. All right, and you are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. That was Professor Jeffrey S. Rosenthal from the University of Toronto discussing probability theory. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week. So stay tuned. Ready to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. The course is the supercomputer which is formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, are the odds for or against? For the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if the odds are for or against them happening. Professor Rosenthal, are you ready to play a game? Okay, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. <laughs> odds for or against, uh, number one, Apple becoming the dominant computer. Hmm, I'd be very happy if it did, but Microsoft has such a stranglehold that I'm going to say the odds are against. Okay, well, I guess, uh, but Bill Gates has got his uh, mind on other things nowadays, so maybe it is possible. Maybe. Yeah, okay. Uh, number two, uh, gas prices dropping under $2 per gallon. 
I'll say no. The odds are against that, too, that somehow, you know, there's a fundamental fact that there's limits on energy sources, so I don't see that as something that's going to change. Okay, very good. Uh, number three, the greatest unsolved problem currently in mathematics, the Riemann hypothesis, being proved in 10 years. Mm, that's an interesting one. It's certainly possible, but I think I'm going to say against, too, because it's been such an important unsolved problem for so long, and to the best of my knowledge, there's no one who's sort of close to solving it or made any recent headway, so possible something will come along, but for now, I'll say it's going to take more than 10 years. Okay, I guess we'll just have to wait and see then. Uh, okay, number four, might be a little premature, but the Chicago Bears winning the Super Bowl. I guess I got to say for any one team, and it's no insult to my friends in Chicago, but <laughs> any one team, the odds have got to be against them winning the Super Bowl any one year. Uh, okay, and finally, number five, uh, finding George Bush on the $1 bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know. Actually, one interesting thing is that the American $1 bill is actually the, uh, the least valuable uh, paper currency, I believe, of any industrialized country. So <laughs> it may be that the next thing that happens with the $1 bill is it gets replaced by a coin before anybody else gets put on it. Okay. Well, all right. Well, uh, Professor Rosenthal, I do want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around, playing our game, the Grokotron 5000, and, of course, talking about your book, Struck by Lightning, The Curious World of Probabilities. Okay. Thank you. Well, hello there, boys and girls. It's the Gay Smurf, and I'm just here today because last week, Gargamel, yeah, Gargamel, he was wondering about the slime molds and how they reproduce. And, well, Gargamel and I, we, we know all about that. They reproduce by both sexual and asexual budding. It's just amazing how they do it. They're just so cute. Okay, and Chili Willy here. Chili Willy likes Smurfs, but Chili Willy likes to be alive, too. Hmm. Chili Willy wants to know how long Chili Willy can live. If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grogs.hotmail.com and maybe Chili Willy can live forever. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grogs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grogs, you can email us at grogs at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grogs, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grogs.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music